few weeks ago, a few of my students caught me in the library and they interviewed me for uh, some video that they were doing or something like that. And they, they asked me the question, when is it appropriate to play Christmas music? They were, they were looking for my, my academic and biblical expertise, I think. When is it appropriate to play biblical music and, or Christmas music? And, and the answer, as, as everybody knows, is that it's only okay to play Christmas music after Thanksgiving is over, right? I mean, Thanksgiving, no early, really probably December 1st, just to be safe, I think. Christmas music only then forward. I used to work with this guy who would play Christmas music in July, like summertime, you'd hear Christmas music coming from his office. April, he'd play Christmas music. Uh, there's, there's something wrong with that, I think. Now, whether or not you agree with my opinions on when Christmas really begins, we can all agree that the season is here, isn't it? I mean, look at this stage. The season is here. Jim Godwin just finished uh, talking to us about Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Did you catch that one phrase, Mighty God? Mighty God, we call this child Mighty God. A few chapters earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of that same child and he says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And that is what Christmas is all about. God is with us. God in human flesh coming as a baby. The old theologians used to say it like this. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining God, remaining divine, the second member of the Trinity, became human. Fully God, fully human, God with us. For the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be thinking about what that means. God with us. I'm going to explore the God part of that phrase. Why is it significant and necessary for our salvation that Jesus Christ is fully God? Then Pastor Austin, next week, will explore the with part of God with us, the withness of God. What does it mean that Jesus is with us? And then Pastor Jeremy is going to speak on the us part of God with us. Why is it significant and necessary for our salvation that Jesus is fully human? And this is going to lead us right into our Christmas sermon. Now, I realize this means that we're going to do two back-to-back kind of topical series. We just finished a, a series on the church, and now we're doing a more topical series leading into Christmas. This is a bit unusual for us at Riverstone. I think, though, it would have been a little bit awkward if we started a book study three weeks before Christmas. You know, for some reason, people show up in December and they expect baby Jesus. I I don't know why that might be. But, you know, if we start preaching on Leviticus or Song of Songs, you get a little uncomfortable December. Am I right? Now, just so you know, January, we're going to be getting back to our normal routine. We're going to begin the book of Acts in January. And that's going to take us through most of 2024. I I really anticipate it's going to be a great series for all of us, great study. But this morning, we are going to focus on God with us. How do we know that Jesus is God, and why is that significant for our salvation? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that have Bibles for you. This is our gift to you. If you are looking for an early Christmas present, you don't have a Bible, here it is coming right down the aisle. 
but we'd encourage you to have the Bible open in front of you. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 today, Hebrews chapter 1, and that's where we're going to explore this question from, is what does the book of Hebrews say, at least in the first couple verses, regarding the deity of Christ, and how does that relate to our salvation? So turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4, which is our text this morning, and then we're going to go back over it slowly and think about line by line what the author of Hebrews is saying. The Bible says, therefore, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he, in, he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now this passage begins long ago. How long ago? Well, it begins in the period of time that we call the Old Testament. During the Old Testament times, the text says, God spoke to our fathers. Now, who are these fathers? Sometimes when the Bible talks about our fathers, it's talking about those patriarchs of the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founding fathers of the Jewish faith. But here, the sense of that term is broader than that. Fathers here refers to all believers in the Old Testament times, not just those three patriarchs. So Adam, Noah, Joseph and Judah, Moses and Aaron, Samuel and David and Hezekiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on and so on. From creation to the formation of the Israelite nation to the exile and beyond, God spoke to these fathers. How did he speak? Well, it says he spoke at many times and in many ways. Those words, by the way, are alliterative in the original language there. At many times and in many ways. Palumeros kai palutrapos. Palumeros kai palutrapos. It's at many times and many ways. It kind of rhymes. It, it goes together. Are you snuffing our candle? For safety. Safety first. Ooh, at safety first as he touches it with his fingers. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. You ever thought about how God spoke to the fathers in the Old Testament? How, how, how many ways, truly the many ways that God spoke to those Old Testament people? He spoke to Adam and Eve directly. He spoke to Moses through an unburned burning bush. He spoke to the Egyptians through signs and wonders. He spoke to the high priest Aaron through the Urim and Thummim. He spoke to Daniel through dreams and visions. He spoke to Gideon through a fleece. He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. He spoke to Elijah through a whisper. He spoke to the Israelites on Mount Sinai through a, a storm. He spoke to Abraham through an angel. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. The prophets. God's spokespersons in the Old Testament the men and sometimes women who represented God to his people. That was how it used to be. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, and many of those words were collected, they were written down, they were memorized, they were preserved by the people of God, taught and passed along down to us in what we have as the Old Testament. 
Now, God didn't just speak once. He didn't just speak to one person. He didn't just speak in one time period. He didn't just speak in one way. God used multiple modes of communication over long periods of time to many different people to make himself known to the world. He is a good, good God. It is a comfort to know that God wants himself to be known to his people. The Old Testament was a very fruitful time of varied communication from God to the people of God. It was a good time, but it was not the best time. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Isn't that great? In these last days, as, as good as it was, knowing that long ago, God spoke at many times and in many ways, there is something greater that has come today. Welcome to Christmas. Jesus Christ. Consider how the first half of verse 2 contrasts with verse 1. Look at this chart that I put up on the screen here. Hebrews begins by bringing to our minds a time long ago. But that's contrasted with in these last days. Notice, notice that phrase, in these last days. That one little word is critical right there, these last days. Not those last days, not the last days that will one day come, but these last days, as in from the author of Hebrews, from his perspective, we are living in those last days as he wrote 2,000 years ago. As a pastor and as a Bible professor, I often get the question, do you think that we're living in the end times? Are these the last days? In fact, our family devotions uh, right now, we are in the book of Revelation at home. Four years ago, we began as a family reading through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this is the accumulation of, or culmination of four long years of, of reading scripture together. We're finally in that final book of the Bible. A long journey is about to be completed. And we're in Revelation. The first night we're in this book, I get the question from my kids. You think Jesus is coming back in our lifetime? You think we're in the end times right now? That's a good question, isn't it? Remember when the coronavirus first hit a couple years ago? What was the question? Are we living in the end times? Is this it? Are these the last days? The war in Israel breaks out. What was the question? Is this the end? Right? Are we living in the end times? The eagles start winning. What's the question? <laughs> it, it, could this be it? You know, right? Now, how does the author of Hebrews answer this question? Is this the last time? Is this the end times? Well, notice how he says it. In these last days, according to the author of Hebrews, the end times have already begun. We are here since the day that the Son of God came to this earth. Since he rose from the dead, later went up to heaven, the end times have begun. These are the last days that we're living in. We are living in a time which is characterized by the culmination of Old Testament prophecy, of the Old Testament saints longing for their Messiah to come. He is here. It has been fulfilled. Welcome to the end. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I find charts and graphics helpful when we talk about uh, these kinds of things. For some reason, uh, charts and graphics on the end times are some of the most complicated things you will ever see in your life. Here's one I just showed my students this past week to illustrate this point. Is it? 
Doesn't that just clear it up for you? Perfectly clear, right? Now let me, let me simplify this for you a bit. From the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews, here's a chart that maybe he would have drawn. The end times started with Jesus. Jesus inaugurated the end times. Now, I, I don't mean to suggest, by the way, that there aren't other things that have to happen at the end of the end of times. The Antichrist or a tribulation or, or something like that, those kinds of things. There are things to happen at the end of the end times. But from the perspective of the writer of Hebrews, these are the last days and they began at the manger. When Christ came. Now going back to that chart that I showed you before. Long ago, God spoke, not that chart. Let's go to the, uh, <laughs> there you go, that's the chart I'm looking for. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, in contrast to the time long ago in the Old Testament, church, these are the last days. In, in the old dispensation, God spoke to the fathers. Now he speaks to us, to Christians. God used to speak at many times and in many ways. But now what's implied is that there is one way that God speaks to us, and that is through his son and the word that his son has given us. These are great things. And now the Son becomes the focus, not only of the opening sentence of the book of Hebrews, but of the entire book of the book of Hebrews, if you kept on reading. But seven statements are now made about Jesus, about the Son. Seven things that point to his supremacy above all other forms of God's communication with humanity. And what we are going to see is that these seven things cumulatively make a case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Together, these things are things we can only say about God. So what does Hebrews 1 say? First of all, God appointed the Son as heir of all things. He is the heir of all things, the inheritor of the entire estate. Now, what does all things include? It includes all things. Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, a prophecy about Jesus Christ to come. Psalm 2 tells us what the Son is set to inherit. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. All the nations, all the very ends of the earth, these are the inheritance of Jesus Christ the Son. And Hebrews 1-2 uses a, a tense in Greek called the aorist tense, which depicts a completed act. God appointed the Son as heir of all things. Past, completed tense, it's done. The appointment has been made and kept. The earth and all it contains belong to Jesus. The universe, every star in the universe, belongs to Jesus. After the incarnation, after the death, after the resurrection, the ascension, the Son now inherits all of it. It has been given to him. He is the heir of all things. And not only that, but Hebrews says, number two, that God created the world through the Son. God appointed the Son as heir of all things, and God created the world through him. The Son is the creator of the world, but not just the world. The Greek here uses a word that's a little bit different than the word normally translated world. It uses a word here that means ages, Yes, the Son created the world, the physical world which we live and move and have our being. Yes, he created the cosmos that we go outside in a, on a cloudless night and we could see all the stars in the sky. He created that. But this is saying he also created the when in which the universe exists. Not only space, 
not only the physical, but the space-time continuum in which space exists. We are talking here about infinite cosmic powers, creator and time maker, boundless infinite God, creating the totality of everything you have ever known to exist. Jesus made it. And if he created even time itself, then that means that the sun must be outside of time. Jesus must be timeless. God alone can claim that kind of honor. In fact, the Bible says in numerous places that God alone creates. Isaiah 44, 24, one of my favorite verses in this regard. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, God says. Notice those emphases there. I alone made this. I did this by myself. God alone creates, and yet Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that Jesus creates. So what's it saying about Jesus? If God alone creates, and if Jesus creates, then that means that Jesus is God. Which leads right into our third description of the sun in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God. That, that phrase is pregnant with deity. God's glory is who he is. It's, it's the revelation of the very nature of God. If you have seen God's glory, then you have seen God, his character, his essence, his works, his very nature. Glory is the outward manifestation of the inward essence of God. And the sun is the radiance of God's glory. You can translate radiance, reflection. But reflection seems almost too passive for what's in view here. The sun does not merely reflect the glory of God. He's not just a mirror of it. He is it. He is the glory of God, the radiance of it. As the Apostle Paul says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Apostle John says it like this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you look at the Son, you see the Father. The fourth characteristic of the Son in Hebrews 1 says something very similar. The Son, it says, is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word imprint originally referred to an engraving or like an impression on a wax seal or a, or a coin. There's an exact correspondence between the image and the imprint. One commentator writes, The Son does not reveal something other than himself, nor does he reveal something other than God. The Apostle Paul puts it a little bit more eloquently. The sun is the image of the invisible God. Maybe you're old enough to remember what it's like to make a carbon copy. Remember those? Little thing, the piece of paper between the two pieces of paper. You've got to press hard enough and it, the imprint shows up on that last paper. Now today, we go and we make a, a photograph of something or we take a picture of it and upload it or something like that, right? It's a little bit easier today, but the idea is that when we see the sun, we see the Father. It's the exact imprint of that nature. We cannot say this about any other human being or creature on earth. You might be like your father. You might sound like your father. You might look like your father. You might have the same mannerisms as your father. You, you might have uh, the same occupation as your father. People might even mistake the two of you at times. When I was a teenager, 
people would call on the telephone back in those days. Remember that? And I would pick up the phone, and people would think it was my dad. And I would just run with it, see what information I can get. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I'd trick people all the time because our voices sounded alike. We, we talk in the same kind of way. But I am not my dad. I am not him. No son can say he is the exact imprint of his father, except for the son that we're talking about here. He can say it. They share one nature, and that nature is divine. The fifth characteristic in Hebrews 1, the son upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Some people get the wrong impression about God. They, they think that God is kind of like a watchmaker. Makes the watch, winds it up, gets it going, and then lets it go. God creates the universe, winds it up, gets it moving, and just kind of steps back, no longer needs anything. He's just going to kind of watch it go. Deists believe that, that God wound up the earth and stepped back to watch it do his thing, and he only kind of inserts himself here and there where needed or when needed, but mostly things just kind of run on their own. That is not at all the picture of God that we see right here. The sun upholds the universe. That's a continuous activity. According to the grammar of the text, that is a continuous activity. He doesn't wind it up and let it go and just watch. He continuously sustains it and upholds it over and over again. If the sun were to cease this characteristic, the very fabric of this universe would be shredded from end to end. Atoms would tear apart and the space-time continuum would collapse in horrific violence. You would be pulverized, vaporized, instantaneously ripped to pieces without even knowing it. The sun upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? By the word of his power. Word here isn't the normal word for word, logos. Word is a different word for word, harema. The emphasis there is on the act of the utterance itself, not the content of the utterance. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks, and then it comes to be. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and so it happened. And even now, as we live, and as we move, and as we breathe the air around us, every atom of this universe continues to exist because of that same word that brought this universe into existence. Because of Jesus. For by the Son all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul writes, Colossians chapter 1. Now the text here goes on to say in Hebrews 1, look at the very end of verse 3. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament law, books like Leviticus or Exodus, you'll notice that a priest's job was never done. Priests don't sit down on the job. They stood working all day long because impurity never really goes away, right? A Jew could be uh, washed clean temporarily, religiously pure temporarily, but more impurity was just right around the corner. We are impure creatures, unclean people, sinful human beings, but it says that the Son made purification for our sins. Now, he didn't take a bull or a sacrifice on the altar and, and, and make purification through that animal. 
He didn't take a sheep or a lamb and spill its blood and, in order to cleanse us from sin with this creature. No, he provided purification with his own blood, with his own self on that sacrificial altar. That's what we just did with this whole communion thing. We drank that juice that represented the blood of Christ poured out for you. The son, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is it necessary that we believe that Jesus is divine? Why is it necessary that we believe that Jesus is God? Why does baby Jesus need to be baby God in human flesh? Because normal human beings cannot provide an eternal, perfect sacrifice for our sins. We cannot do that work ourselves. Without the divinity of Christ, we have no salvation through Christ. So the sixth characteristic we see here is that the Son sits at the right hand of God after making purification for sins. The position of the Son is critical here. At the right hand of the majesty on high, it says. At the right hand of God Almighty. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand was the seat of power. That was the power seat. It was the seat of honor, the seat of privilege, the seat of authority. The right hand seat usually shared the same power and the same authority as the one who was sitting on the throne. The Son of God fills that seat with the greatest authority this world has ever seen. The honor of sitting next to the majesty of heaven. The majesty on high. The high king of heaven. The Son takes his seat at the right hand of God. And verse 4 shares with us a seventh and final statement. It says in verse 4, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now you might think that the mention of angels comes out of nowhere here. It seems kind of like a surprise in the text. When when we started talking about angels, all of a sudden they appear. But if you read the rest of chapter 1 of Hebrews, which we're not going to do this morning, but if you read the rest of chapter 1, you will see that the Son is supreme and superior over angels. That's where the argument goes. But here we see the seventh and final characteristic of the Son. The Son has inherited a name more excellent than the angels. Now, there are a few things I want to make sure we understand about that kind of a statement. The opening words of verse 4, having become as much superior to angels. That might at first lead us to believe that there was a time when the Son was not superior to the angels. But the idea here is not that the Son was previously inferior to angels. We already saw that he existed before time. He created the world and all things in it. He created the angels. They are created beings, and Jesus Christ created them. The creature is not greater than the creator. Now, this verse is not saying that the Son used to be inferior to angels, but it's saying that by means of the name bestowed upon the Son, after making purification for sins, after sitting down at the right hand of the Father on high, the Son is shown to be much more superior than the angels. The name Son proves what he already is. The name demonstrates what he always has been. The Son makes purification, completes the job as high priest, expressing undeniable proof of his superiority to the angels. No angel can claim these things that we're saying about Jesus here. 
No angel has ever provided purification for sins. No angel has ever sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has now inherited a name much more excellent than the angels. Inherited is written as a past tense with continuing ongoing results. At the time when the purification was completed, this name was bestowed upon him and he continues to carry it with him into eternity future. It's not that he wasn't the son to the father in eternity past. He always was. He always eternally will be divine son of God. But that act of purification, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, that bestows upon him this name that is above every other name. And his inheritance and the seat of honor, the title of son in such a way that will never again be paralleled. Think about what we've seen in these verses. God appointed the son as heir of all things. God created the world through that son. The son is the radiance of the glory of God. The son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The son upholds the universe by the word of his power. The son sits at the right hand of God on high. The son has inherited a name much more excellent than the angels. Who is this son? His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. Jesus was appointed heir of all things. Jesus created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus made purification for sins, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has inherited a name much more excellent than all the angels. Jesus Christ is the son of God. As great as it was that God spoke to humanity in many times and in many ways in the Old Testament, God now speaks to us through Jesus And that's our focus during this Christmas season. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. His death, his resurrection provided for all of humanity the opportunity to have our sins purified once and for all. He made that purification, then he sat down because his work in that regard was done. He is the word through which God has spoken to us in these last days. He is the radiance of God's glory the incarnate Son of God, the glory of the Father. And he loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. That God loved you enough to come down and die for you. I was thinking about this the other day. One of the most overlooked Christmas verses in the Bible is ironically perhaps one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a Christmas verse, isn't it? God gave us his son. What son? The son that we read about in Hebrews chapter 1. The heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the name above all names. God loved you so much that he gave the son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Every book of Moses, every word of David, every sermon of the prophets points to Jesus Christ. 
Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke through his prophets. Isaiah, we read the words of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah spoke these words and he made prophecies about Jesus. Jeremiah spoke God's words and he looked forward to a time of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel spoke the words of God in many different ways, pointing people to that Savior. Daniel saw visions of Jesus to come. Hosea spoke the word of God and pointed forward to Christ. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, we could go on and on about all the prophets. They longed for their Messiah and they pointed us to him. All of these prophets spoke the word in many times and in many ways, and they were good. But Jesus Christ is greater because Jesus Christ is divine. And without that divinity, we have no purification for sins. We have no hope of salvation. And that is why we celebrate God with us. So church, welcome to Christmas. Let's pray. God, I am humbled by this passage, thinking about the majesty of the Savior, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the greatness of the God that we worship, yet come down as a human to die for us. May we go here, Lord, worshiping you, trembling before you, celebrating you, sharing your name with others. May we consider the impact of the divinity of Jesus Christ and how important it is that we know that you, God, God is with us. Not just some prophet, not just some great teacher, not just some rabbi, but God himself with us. Lord, as we look towards Christmas, may we not get caught up in all the commercialism, the materialism, the idolatry even, but may we think about the wonders of God become human flesh. We praise you, Lord, for what we've seen in this passage today. We worship your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless. Thank you.